Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. This special episode of Talking Humanitarianism features a roundtable discussion on the principle and practice of humanitarian neutrality during the Syrian civil war since 2011. This roundtable is the first in a series of discussions on ethics in humanitarian action. Held on 16 January 2023, the roundtable was organised and chaired by Christopher Liden, a researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, who opens the discussion. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this uh, webinar on the topic of humanitarian neutrality in Syria in the periods between 2011 and 2021 during the civil war. This webinar is arranged by the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies and Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, in collaboration with the International Law, Peace and Armed Conflict Institute at University of Bochum and the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflicts. This webinar relates to a research project called Red Lines and Grey Zones, exploring the ethics of humanitarian negotiations, which is led by myself, Christophe Liden, who's a researcher at PRIO, and uh, I lead it together with Christina Rupstorf, who is both affiliated with PRIO and with the in International Law, Peace and Armed Conflict Institute, Bochum. So the humanitarian operations in Syria during the civil war have been subject to much controversy. And this culminated with the report taking sides from the Syria campaign in 2016 and later reports like the Human Rights Watch report rigging the system from 2019 that uh, spelled out the criticism of UN operations and also of the role of humanitarian organizations uh, in Syria. This criticism is reflected and carefully uh, discussed in the book The Neutrality Trap by Karsten Vila, who's with us here to get today. And uh, what we wanted to do with this uh, discussion was to look into his argument, also the thinking on, okay, what were the realistic alternatives to what the UN and humanitarian organizations did in Syria during the civil war so far. And for that, we also have uh, with us Anna Servi, who set up and led the uh, Damascus-based office of the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council uh, since 2015 until uh, last year, and uh, who has maneuvered this space from the inside and who knows the intricacies 
of how to actually maneuver this because this is often presented as a choice between neutrality involving some form of collaboration with the regime in Syria or withdrawal or some form of taking an active stance with the opposition and pressuring the regime. But what we see from both Vilan's uh, book and from experience is how there is, these are opposites on a scale within which there is a lot of nuance and a lot of different options for how to maneuver this space. And it's this op uh, space that we're going to look into. And this space has a practical strategic dimension in terms of how do you get the job done most efficiently as UN agencies or as international non-governmental organizations or as local NGOs. But you also have uh, an ethical dimension to this, which is about the dilemmas that uh, organizations face when thinking about this. Because for instance, the option of withdrawing involves not giving aid to people who you could give aid to on a principled basis. And uh, this is experienced as a practical question of, okay, so if you withdraw, what will the consequences be strategically? But it's also an ethical question. It also has a legal dimension. And uh, this legal landscape of domestic law in Syria and international law, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, is a very complex one and one that Emanuela Chiara Gillard has specialized in and written on for uh, over a long period, including guidance for humanitarian action in Syria and beyond. And uh, Gillard is with us to give a, a legal take on Wieland's uh, argument. So uh, with this, uh, I will invite uh, Viela to uh, give an introduction to, to his argument and then we will get comments from Anna, Servi and Emanuela Gillard. And afterwards we will open up for a discussion between the three of you and also some of the other roundtable participants that we have with us. So please, Karsten, go ahead. Thank you very much, Christopher, also for um, putting together such a distinguished group to discuss this matter. In fact, um, I'm always asked, so why did you write this book or what was the, the trigger? Um, I've been working for years on the political track um, on the Syrian negotiations. I did not work on the humanitarian track, <clears throat> but I was puzzled from my perspective uh, also into different ministries of donors, donor countries and the discussion within the UN and talking to a lot of people in, in the humanitarian field, how the um, humanitarian aid in Syria played out. So I was looking at the different factors. On the one hand, we have the situation that there is an international practice and it's not more, not less than a practice that uh, humanitarian aid is primarily um, delivered uh, to governments. And um, that is a practice that probably did not take into account what happens if a government itself who has a particular 
responsibility vis-a-vis -vis its population according to international law. So what if a government itself is the one that is, and we have uh, figures on civilian deaths, destruction, etc., is responsible roughly for 90% of the destruction, the civilian deaths, and the one that receives uh, primarily humanitarian aid through Damascus, uh, first of all, and we get to the discussion about cross-line and cross-border perhaps, which is rather a discussion that returns every six months because of the UN Security Council resolution, but is more or less the surface um, why it pops up all the time of a deeper debate. Now, the regime re received uh, partially up to 40% of its budget in certain years um, uh, from international um, uh, aid. That money was set free um, to spend somewhere else. So it, it, it alleviated the regime in its warfare and to spend the money in its warfare. And the warfare I describe in the book is an, what I term it a, a, an, an integrative warfare. So you use uh, hard um, measures, brutal measures like starving to death, with it, which is the extreme form of an access problem in humanitarian affairs. So it's not only barring access in the way um, of here and there, barring access because you want to manipulate aid and send it somewhere else. No, it was a deliberate method of warfare. Um, the so-called hard-to-reach areas, actually starving to death, middle-aged um, uh, methods of warfare. But you also use soft factors such as appropriating uh, humanitarian aid or uh, international assistance, more generally speaking, because as we know, there are conflicts where uh, humanitarian actors are kicked out, basically are expelled from a government or from a conflict because they are seen as disturbing or taking sides, uh, etc. Now, in the Syrian case, it was uh, just the opposite. Uh, the government in place was very conscious of the fact what resources such a presence, international presence, meant in Syria. And I'm not talking only uh, about financial resources. It's also a resource of legitimacy and um, and um, kind of um, cooperation with the international community, while at the same time violating all kinds of international uh, norms, especially international humanitarian law and human rights law. So uh, a regime, when I talk about regime, by the way, I mean a, a broader term that comprises the government plus militias, muhabarat, etc. So it's not a derogatory term by itself. It is a wider term than the government because the government itself, as we know, it doesn't have much to say in Syria. That means the cabinet and the ministers. So, uh, of course, you have the government uh, taking part in the talks, in the political talks in Geneva, but you have the wider regime uh, fighting this conflict. So what I did was I also looked into um, uh, the, 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 the ways how uh, people worked um, in the uh, in the field. So I spoke to a lot of people who were um, part of this uh, humanitarian effort. And I have to say, when we talk about the working level, the machine room of humanitarian activity and affairs, we have a plethora of people who have been highly engaged and have been working under immense uh, personal pressure and danger. But when it comes to decision making circles and you have, the higher you go up, of course, you realize you do work in a totalitarian regime, which Syria had been already before the war. And during the war, it played out its most crucial side. Um, so when you speak of, um, you know, working level um, kind of leadership levels, you also see when you look at Syria, a few things that make you think 
uh, if that was necessary. For example, if a, um, a humanitarian, uh, be it UN or otherwise, in that case it was UN primarily, um, um, functionary uh, in charge um, gives interviews about the regime's sovereignty and legitimacy. So he, he makes political statements while he's supposed to be neutral and impartial, since we all know humanitarian aid is supposed to be neutral and partial and reach as many needy as possible and the most needy. So when you look at the besieged areas, it was definitely not the most needy. I've just looked up a number again in 2015, for example, only every 10th uh, request of uh, convoys of, of, of humanitarian delivery was was reached in the end or was was uh, granted and reached its goal, its destination. So you had a very minimal number um, of aid that that went through and you have then humanitarian actors making these statements. In some uh, contexts, they try to uh, even exert pressure on the media or the journalists not to report about those statements. So you see that there was a huge um, bargaining and, and a problem here. The other you know, things that have been highlighted also by other studies, be it uh, Human Rights Watch or uh, Chatham House and others, um, first started by The Guardian, by the way, research, was the contracting problem. So there are, uh, you, know, con uh, you know, it's like the UN is in the country, receives money from donors, and the donors have put people on the sanctions list for good reason, because they are part of the systematic torture, part of the militias, etc. And then you have you look on the on the list of contractors of the UN and you do find those people there again in a disguised different mode. Um, for example, there are charities that were prolonged arms of militias um, that received contracts or um, you have a, an entire system under which the UN had to operate. Um, so there was the principal decision that was taken in uh, early on in the war 2012 where the government that was actually standing uh, with the back to the wall um, saying, OK, you can and we want you to operate in Syria, but these are the conditions and the conditions are very hard and tough as everyone who has worked in Syria knows you do always have to make compromises, but these conditions were extremely tough and 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 restricted um, the neutrality and the impartiality um, uh, under which uh, the humanitarians are supposed to work. So besides of this general problem of, of having to deal with a difficult partner, which is not a specific Syrian problem, you had this immense uh, scope of the Syrian conflict, the immense scope of humanitarian suffering, of, um, of uh, transgressing red lines in humanitarian affairs, uh, barrel bombs, systematic torture, etc. So that made all this so blatant, also this um, uh, this international practice to deliver humanitarian aid primarily, primarily to Damascus. You also had um, uh, uh, the UN agencies employing family members of regime um, uh, politicians, uh, high-ranking people. I think there is a certain upper class, upper middle class in, in those countries that are polyglot and that are employed in those agencies, international agencies. But if you employ them during this conflict in a very polarized environment, you uh, trigger something that many um, people from the ground reported to me that they felt intimidated in, in strategic discussions, uh, internal discussions uh, where there was a certain um, uh, direction given, a political direction 
on how to discuss matters and and what not to discuss. So there was a kind of self-censorship within agencies because you had people reporting directly to the regime. So there are a couple of those um, issues that you can um, number. Now, the question was, if you, if you do this, so if you continue to uh, follow this international practice, and if you do also follow the practice to a table cross-border um, issues to the Security Council, at least you have to know that there is a different uh, opinion in an other in a, in a in a stream of progressive uh, experts of international law who say actually cross border is something you don't even have to table to the security council and it's something that um, a host country uh, nowadays in that development of international law <clears throat> is not able to reject out of capricious or political reasons so the the war goal was of course to exterminate ex extinguish certain strata of the population, certain regions. That's why they were bombed uh, indiscriminately and starved to death. So why does it make sense to uh, deliver aid cross line? <clears throat> that made cross-border necessary. So if you go on and, and, and looking at this scenario, you have only one border crossing left to do cross-border where actually the rockets landed in those years. And you have a, a, a lot of aid that went into Damascus where the rockets were launched towards the north. Then you have a certain disequilibrium and you have actually a question in front of you. Is that something that international practice had in mind when this uh, humanitarian practice was established? So that's actually the question of the book and the trap. The neutrality trap is, of course, that donors spend and earmark money with good intentions in, on a humanitarian um, mission and there is an internal debate and there have, have been a lot of debates in ministries between humanitarian uh, actors and some somewhat more political actors both have their arguments don't challenge the UN system because it might break down altogether especially in our times that's also something uh, very uh, relevant to discuss or you undermine the credibility of the UN even more and the others who say actually you have to adjust because we have this discrepancy here, we have one side that uh, is taking advantage of this practice and to the effect that humanitarian aid is not at all anymore uh, neutral and impartial. So I might end here and I might um, kind of point to one or two other things later on in the discussion. We will now turn to Anna Sarvi and your uh, perspective on this as seen from your experience in, in Damascus. Please, Anna. Uh, thanks ever so much, uh, Christopher, and uh, thanks uh, for organizing uh, this event. And it is really my pleasure to be with you all uh, today and have this discussion. Karsten's book made me relook at many of the events uh, reported in the book itself, which I lived uh, in first person, as uh, Christopher said. I started in Syria in 2015, uh, but yet look through those same events uh, through other lenses, right? So I would like to start by building on its uh, on the core question of the book, which echoes what you ask yourself uh, every single day when you are performing in a place like Syria. So let me explore with you what humanitarian decision makers in Syria did or could have done to deliver their response while complying with humanitarian principles and the international legal frameworks seen from my perspective, um, which is one perspective of the many that are out there and by no means um, exhaustive of all the options that could be there. 
While this book triggered a number of reflections, in the interest of time, I'd like to talk about what I define as the capacity of humanitarians to neutrally claim or reclaim back operational or de facto independence, uh, which is, in my experience, the key enabler for complying with all the other principles and international law. And to do so towards any source of constraints um, by and pushing to do the right things at the right time for the right people. If your independence is crippled, and in this I, I pretty much second what Karsten uh, says in his book, uh, your neutrality goes out of the windows. And while nominally you do not take sides, uh, de facto you are forced to act in a specific way dictated by the source of your restriction that might be perceived or be non-neutral. And the most clear-cut examples, as also presented in the book and in other reports, is about the ability of supporting out of Damascus the population in need in opposition controlled areas, or your lack of thereof. But another example is also if you are not funded by donors to help people in need in government controlled areas, uh, which you can reach, uh, but only for those that are in other areas outside of government control. So, as you can see, there are many stressors that challenge your operational independence, and it is beyond the scope of my intervention today to address them all. Uh, however, while acknowledging that also the donors, governments, legal framework and practices had a negative impact on independence for humanitarian, let me focus today on the most controversial one that are those constraints related coming from in, within the country from what I would call generally the national legal framework. Uh, or more generally even the framework within which uh, a humanitarian actor performs in Syria. So in country and for the response out of Damascus, as much you might want to question the existing rule of law and how law is then applied, still national legislation needs to be respected and followed unless there is a higher ranking uh, framework that takes precedence, uh, like for example a UN Security Council resolution. You commit to this uh, once uh, you register in Damascus uh, in the country and uh, it does challenge your space and your operational independence as a result. Breaching the national law is not an option and let's remember also that it could harm uh, the, the your own staff and uh, the beneficiaries you are there to help. I think uh, a lot of times it, we talk about visas for internationals but our main concern all the time is not about our visas. Uh, or hasn't been that much is more towards that dimension that is often overlooked. So the take it or leave it option, as also Christopher said uh, at the beginning, it's it's definitely uh, it's an option, but I agree with Karsten that its effective, effectiveness depends on when it is taken and used, and we will never know if, if it would have changed anything in Syria because it was not chosen. So what are the other option to reclaim uh, back, I would say, uh, your independence in a place like Syria. So over the years, I saw as having, a, in that context, at least three options, none of which particularly easy or pleasant to, to implement, but nonetheless options. So first of all, um, propose a new or a different interpretation of clauses existing in frameworks and agreements. For example, where uh, consultation with the government was interpreted and applied by the other interna uh, international actors as with the approval of the government, your job was to push through an interpretation that would give you the space that was originally into uh, your agreement. 
However, let's remember that restrictions existed well before the war and they were even tighter, but not really challenged until the conflict started. So it wasn't easy to challenge what was not challenged for years before. And it also shaped the self-imposed boundaries that humanitarian responders believed to have because it has always been like this. Um, so that's one first step that you can take. Uh, the second is to suggest or push through new framework and new agreement. Um, here is my experience uh, that is very specific and not applicable to others uh, that were there since long time. But I arrived, I arrived in Syria in 2015, had to establish an office and I had I could negotiate our terms of engagement from scratch, from zero. And this is where you have a chance to actually carve out as much space for operating as you could. The third and last uh, option that you have is to put forward new practical ways to do business and to breach this concept of business as usual that could be actually scaled up over time and applied to all humanitarian actors. To, be, to give you a, a practical example, if NGOs were not allowed to participate in interagency cross-line convoys, still they could deliver cross-line uh, support on their own outside of the UN umbrella, which we did and uh, with the approvals uh, of all sides and actually we did also in a different way by staying and delivering and not just dropping and going, for example. So um, that, that's when uh, I say uh, the third option could be also to, to, to look at different practical uh, uh, ways to deliver. Now, you do all the above use in different tactics, uh, tactics and this means taking strong stances such as stopping programs if you cannot comply with standards, uh, give back funding to donors and so on and so forth. But this is another set of issues that uh, are a little bit outside of the scope of my contribution at this stage. Um, but let me finish by saying that I left Syria seeing, uh, so to speak, failures um, as actually missed opportunity for reclaiming back that operational space that independence that could have enabled us uh, to actually uh, implement and, and adhere more to, to, the, to the other principles. Over the years, each of us had plenty of opportunities to renegotiate terms of engagement in the country. Every time uh, an MOU expired, every time you had a new head of mission, change of other staff members, new projects, new needs, uh, but also internationally, there were missed opportunities because, for example, the UN Security Council Resolution 2165 had a cross-line component, but actually because the debate got focused on border crossing only and it did not even try to ameliorate, change or adapt cross-line provision, uh, this was a missed opportunity as it could have turned, uh, like in turn, had the potential to broaden the operational space for principal aid in Damascus. Many reasons why these were missed, uh, and I'm not going to enter into the details of those, but definitely uh, lack of time, uh, the polarization of the humanitarian response, which as humanitarians we help to create, um, the lack of capacity and or willingness to stick together and push, which Karsten reflects very well in his book, the asymmetric, le asymmetric leverage between a government and humanitarian actors. There are different weights. But also the stigmatization you had when operating out of Damascus, which undermined your credibility even when you actually achieved um, what I was mentioning before. And uh, your politica the political isolation and distance, again, very, 
very much uh, agree with most of what Karsten says in the book, that in the end of the day, it leaves you unprotected where you are performing and subjects uh, are more exposed or at risk of bullying and harassment. I would be, of course, happy to explore any of all the elements I put out there, but in the interest of time, I will leave it at that. Thank you so much and over to you, Christopher. Fantastic, wonderful, and thanks so much for, for, for sharing your um, your experience and your perspectives with us and combining it with your also extensive uh, analytical uh, background uh, from from relevant studies. So so this is a very valuable uh, complement, I think, to to the analysis that we have so far in in, in many reports and, and so on. So this is uh, really, really great that you could could share this. Thank you. And uh, we're now turning to uh, Gillard, who uh, is uh, with a, a research fellow with the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, and also uh, with the uh, International Law Program at Chatham House. And uh, you're also affiliated with our project on uh, ethics and humanitarian negotiations. So please uh, share some of your thoughts uh, from the legal perspective on this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, today's session is incredibly interesting and, and valuable both for Syria, but I would say at this stage it's also incredibly important to look at what happened in Syria and see what lessons we can learn because it is quite a unique precedent. I too have been involved in a variety of of different roles um, from within the UN um, as an advisor to operational NGOs and also in a more academic role in the Syria conflict right from the outset. Um, and I was always providing advice on the relevant legal framework and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, very quickly questions turned to the law regulating humanitarian relief operations. And I have to say that from the outset, my response was, I'm very happy that you want to find out more about the law, but the law will not provide you the solutions you're looking for. These you can only obtain through humanitarian negotiations, as always. Um, there is no legal silver bullet that will resolve your problems. Um, and yet, and yet, these actors, the UN, NGOs, states, kept on returning with slightly reformulated versions of the same legal question. Is consent required for cross-border relief operations? And in fact, what they meant here was, is the consent of the state, Damascus, required for operations that do not transit territory under its effective control? It's good. It's good that um, some good has come from this focus on the law because I think it led to a far greater awareness of the rules of IHL international humanitarian law that regulate relief operations. I always refer to them as the, the Cinderella of IHL um, until Syria. And this was unwarranted because I think in terms of sheer numbers, the greatest suffering or casualty is actually caused by humanitarian crises prompted by conflict rather than actually conduct of facilities, but it's the rules regulating conduct of facilities that get far more attention. Um, what are these rules? 
um, in a nutshell. And I'm going to pick up on one of your comments, Carsten, that you made right at the outset. You you said um, that humanitarian aid is delivered through governments, and, and this isn't in fact correct, neither as a matter of law nor as a matter of practice. Development assistance is provided through governments. Humanitarian assistance is carried out by humanitarian actors. This is necessary in order for the humanitarian assistance to be impartial, independent and neutral. So there's a very important distinction to be drawn. Um, why am I flagging it? Because I think this is important for the legal framework, but it is also important for the narrative for what happened in Syria. Why? Because in a nutshell, international humanitarian law foresees two successive stages. First, an initial authorization to carry out relief operations in the first place, humanitarian operations, and then once they have been authorized, an obligation to allow and facilitate. And in Syria, we're looking very much at this first element, obtaining the authorization to operate. And I think it's important to look at where Syria was in 2010, 11 and 12. It was a context where, apart from a few operations related principally to the Golan, it was a development context. The government was used, um, used to being a party to the activities, coordinating. That's the frame of mind with which it came to a lot of the, uh, of the work. And what did this mean? First, that a lot of the key humanitarian actors were not actually present in, in Syria. It was essentially a development context. So they had to obtain this consent to be there in the first place. And it also affected the frame of mind of the government. It was used to being a partner to the operations, to dictating where things went, because that's how development action is, to grossly generalize. So if we look at these two sets of questions, the first question that needs to be looked at from an international humanitarian law perspective is um, the initial authorization. And so the key question was, from a legal perspective, in a situation of non-international armed conflict, such as the one in Syria, is the consent of the state required for operations from a neighboring country that don't transit through areas under the government um, control? And the preponderant but not unanimous view is that yes, the consent of the state is required in those circumstances, but cannot be arbitrarily withheld. Now, turning back to Syria specifically, Carsten, you mentioned the, the progressive lawyers. Yes, there, there is a scope for other views and some have been expressed. MSF, for example, has always said, we do not think that the consent of the state is required as a matter of law. There are some who take this view. But what happened in Syria? And uh, this is very significant because it shaped the response. In practice, very early on in the crisis, so in March 2013, the, um, uh, the UN's legal advisor said that as far as the UN is concerned, the, the consent of the territorial state is required. And the reality is that we were stuck with this. Um, UN agencies' own operations were stuck with this decision that they could not operate unless they had the consent of Damascus. The operations of UN's implementing partners were stuck with this reality, and so were 
all the plethora of actors who um, relied on the support activities conducted by OCHA, for particularly in relation to, to funding. So it was really, it, it cut off the opportunities for a discussion of other interpretations of the law. As I always say, don't ask legal questions if you're not going to like the answer, but someone did ask that legal question at the highest level. And so it meant in practice that there was only a very small number of humanitarian actors who didn't somehow, who were not somehow affected by this decision. Essentially, it was MSF because it didn't engage in the UN structures in any way and the ICRC and the, they could choose their own interpretation of the law. The others were stuck with this. Hence, the need for this workaround as a matter of law around this requirement of consent. And that's what we had in the Security Council Resolution 2165 and all the subsequent um, ones um, that essentially overrode the requirement of consent. Um, Anna, you mentioned missed opportunities. I, I often use that very term. I see, I think there was a missed opportunity from the outset. It shouldn't have been framed as a legal question. I think we should have framed it as a humanitarian negotiation. It would have potentially downplayed the polarization of framing this as a legal question. Operationally, I completely agree with you. It's so regrettable that the focus for political reasons as well was on the cross-border operations. No one picked up the fact that in Security Council Resolution 2165, OP2 kicks off by saying consent is not required for cross-line and also cross-border. When I went out and spoke to humanitarian actors, they didn't believe me. They said it says nothing about cross-line and I say it refers to cross-line before it refers to cross-border. Completely overlooked. We could discuss why. I'm sure there are some understandable reasons, but really a missed opportunity. To wrap up going forwards, very different situation in 2023. Um, periodically, as this resolution expires, exactly the same questions um, come up. And I have to say nothing's changed. We're in exactly the same situation. As far as the UN is concerned, the UN's own operations are concerned. OLA is standing, decision still stands. I think in terms of the support that could be provided um, by OCHA, and I think it's significant because it relates to, to funding, which is what we're looking at. We still have the, the decision there, perhaps less cast in stone. What has changed significantly is the reality on the ground, of course, and in particular that Syria is in a far better position to actually enforce the law. And I think what we need to, to really bear in mind is what you flagged, Anna, that the reality is that national staff is at phenomenal risk if it carries out um, unauthorized operations and that agencies cannot operate without national staff. That's, that's just the reality of operations and on the risk. So I'm going to go back to what I've been saying for 10 years. The law will not provide the solutions. On the contrary, it's going to create more polarizations and the solutions lie where they always lie, which is negotiations with the parties and now 
with, with Damascus, but also with actors that do still exercise government control. And as always, you know, Anna, this is your job, not mine. You're unlikely to get 100% of what you want. It's unlikely to be 100% of the actors who would like to be operating that are going to end up operating. That's fine. The law doesn't say that all the actors must operate. The law says that there must not be unmet needs. That's quite different. And I think what's important to conclude is that in this framework, we need to stand firm on what is not acceptable. And for example, not providing medical care or removing medical items is not acceptable. So I think that's where our red line would come up. Thanks a lot, really. And this and this uh, indeed happens uh, often during the during the war that that such uh, such humanitarian aid as medical aid was withheld by the authorities. So it was a, uh, the international law and humanitarian law was also at stake in terms of living with these sorts of uh, these sorts of breaches, right? So while you uh, uh, allude to negotiations in terms of how to clarify these issues amongst different actors, there is also this negotiation about okay whether to accept certain breaches or not in practice and also there is also this kind of practical negotiation uh, of, of different uh, of the uh, behavior of different actors Karsten, i want to get uh, go back to you before opening up for a, a discussion do you have any uh, immediate responses to uh, the comments yeah, thank you, and thank you for the for the great input and the very high quality of the debate. Um, I want to just um, reflect on a few points. The national legislation, yes, it's a clear dilemma. I I completely agree with what Anna also said. Um, but I also see nowadays, for example, I just uh, learned one um, about one incident where an NGO wanted to do uh, or is trying to get funding for an accountability project, and they were rejected by a Western organization, uh, maybe they will make it public in some at some point, who said we can't give you funding because you're not registered in Damascus. Um, and it's an international accountability project. Uh, so that's also the question, you know, how much do you adhere or how much do you put into, into danger the national staff or any staff working on this? And how can you work on accountability under such uh, a situation and the register in the Syria Trust in this regard? Um, the take it or leave it option, yes, I've discussed it. It's uh, you do have historical examples where at least punctually it worked and where the UN has perhaps um, taken on board a harder stance or a collective bargaining was recommended by many actors, uh, a more coherent stance. But I also agree time has passed that to change something that would have been the time of 2012-13. And today we are in a situation where the government and the regime as such is much uh, stronger in place and is much harder to do compromises with. Um, rules were not challenged before the war. Yes, obviously the rules in the totalitarian system have been like this. What I would add is that the repercussions of these rules have become uh, obvious and escalated after 2011, that these rules more or less um, by default led to this brutality, uh, besieging areas, torturing, etc., because that was the self-understanding of the regime controlling each and every single activity in the country, also the humanitarian one. And this is where politics sets in and you have to discuss it politically, I think. Um, now the cross-border uh, discussion and the legal uh, issue. 
the NGOs, uh, of course, delivered cross-border without the UN Security Council, and a lot of, I would say, also um, repercussions of certain criticism against the handling of uh, certain things by the UN has led to a diversification of uh, funds into uh, NGOs who don't need the UN Security Council blessing in our practice. Um, the cro the, the cross-border, cross-line issue. I, well, a lot of mischances, definitely. I just wonder, that I, I have, what I have seen in the political discussions and diplomatic efforts, that cross-line has always been discussed very strongly. Um, but the interest of the other side, say uh, Assad Plus, so that means the Russians in particular, was to divert, I mean, also the discussion away from that because cross line was not in the interest of the of the government and we have seen that very few convoys have made it through. What was in the interest was uh, to include other items into this into this resolution that are not humanitarian. For example, uh, resilience or early recovery. So you start trading things that are not tradable by definition. So humanitarian aid needs to be and remain unconditional and it's not transactional. So what has entered into the resolution is a transactional approach. You can get or keep your cross-border if you like, at least to certain restrictions and, you know, Babel Hawa at this one checkpoint, but you give us more early recovery because Syria is now a normal country and we can continue business as usual. And that's actually the narrative of, of the Russian side. Now, legally speaking, what Emanuela said, yet of course, I mean, that might have been a bit too short to say uh, aid is delivered to Damascus. It's, I think, to and through. So the, inter the humanitarian aid is delivered or the money is given by donors to NGOs who are supposed to enter through and into government control, operate under government restrictions and laws and control, and is uh, mainly channeled through Damascus. So that was actually, uh, and and the I remember very well in the early years uh, of the conflict, the small NGOs who who sneaked into uh, the territory cross-border, who established their makeshift clinics in the basements under heavy fire, were not considered humanitarian actors by most of the Western donors. Now this has changed a bit because they were considered like guerrilla NGOs who don't adhere to, uh, you know, to, to international law and who are not, who are out of the system. Now, meanwhile, they have, some of them at least, have established a certain reputation where they can handle things. Also, the bureaucratic um, uh, kind of um, work that they have to do when they receive money. So that was a learning process. But this is now a political decision. Now we are back into politics because it's not in a vacuum, in a political vacuum, this humanitarian uh, effort. Now, the, the, diversification, the diversification has taken place also into those NGOs. And now there is a second uh, political step. What had happened, or if, if the Russians, for example, had blocked the uh, cross-border resolution completely, and there were some fears that this would happen, what would have been the alternative? Now, there are increased discussions, and I, I still think there were a lot of, and there are a lot of um, experts of international law who were not taken into account in this final political decision-making in 2013. The UN Legal Advisor, where there were also uh, studies of alternative views in uh, national ministries who were not taken on board. But nowadays, now this was 2012-13, nowadays I see, and I've just been on a panel last week where this has been discussed also with uh, diplomats, there is a, a, a tendency 
to discuss alternatives. That means if we, I mean, do we still need the Security Council? Maybe this blatant abuse leads to a political pressure and, and this blockade on the other side needs us to think in a different uh, manner. So this is at least the tendency that I observe. So this thinking is stronger than a few years back and it might turn into international practice at some point. However, it will be very confrontational when the other side, of course, uh, is not uh, on board. And that is, of course, a political problem and a political controversy and danger. But what I'm trying to say is we do have developments here because of the experience in Syria. There are things that are spilling over into international law, of course, even in the end, but into international politics and UN politics uh, in, in particular. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I'm now opening up for um, other uh, in inputs, both from the two of uh, you, uh, Manu and Anna, or from other roundtable participants. Uh, and uh, while I uh, wait for you raising your electronic hands, uh, I, I could just add that, yes, as, as uh, you just alluded to, Kasten, uh, this, of course, is happening within uh, a dramatic shift in the geopolitical context, but also the context of the UN Security Council. Um, and Syria was, to, to, to a certain extent, uh, a really uh, a symbol or a manifestation of this shift with the role of Russia in, in Syria and then as a veto power in the Security Council. So we have a geopolitical setting now today that on the one, ha one hand invites ideas about going beyond the Security Council or bracketing the Security Council in humanitarian politics. On the other hand, it makes such moves even more controversial and, uh, and, uh, and simply utopian to, be, uh, to do within the Security Council because Russia, China, uh, knows exactly what's at stake if you open this type of development. So, so um, I'm happy that we also kind of got this dimension. I, I should, of course, also have started by recognizing the immense uh, suffering that, that the people within Syria have gone through in this period and that somehow drowns when we go directly to more you know, strategic political discussion on how to deal with this. Um, but that's the focus of this discussion. So it's sort of the, the handling of the situation. Okay, so I have, we have Lars Christi. Please introduce yourself. Lars Christi. I'm um, Associate Professor at the Inland University, Norway. Uh, my question goes to several of the panelists, but maybe Anna is best place. Several of you mentioned that MSF and ICRC were able to operate slightly differently than other NGOs uh, and that they didn't have to follow or they didn't observe the same constraints. But then my question is, how, how did they um, get around the problem uh, that was pointed out by uh, Emanuela? And I think also you, Anna, that uh, local staff, this will be very risky for local staff. So how did they, how did they solve this? I realize that there are no representatives of the MSF or ICRC here now, but insofar as you know something about it, thanks. 
Okay, uh, I will take one more uh, question or, or comment first uh, from uh, Mukesh Kapila. So uh, please come in and uh, say who you are first. Thank you. A couple of comments, really. Uh, one is uh, that why are we fighting today's problems with yesterday's uh, weapons? I mean, you know, this fixation with impartiality, neutrality and all the rest of it. Does anyone really in their real mind actually believe it works in practice? I speak as a former UN humanitarian coordinator who struggled with this when the Darfur genocide happened on my patch. And I speak also as a former head of the humanitarian department in the British government that was uh, if uh, absolutely not neutral or impartial when it came to making funding decisions in terms of influencing organizations to go and work where we wanted them to work in the way we wanted them to uh, where I make no apology uh, for that. Uh, and, and you know, in last few months I've been dealing with uh, Tigray quite a lot, which uh, those of you who know about this will know that we've had some real problems with uh, the embargoes, the blockade that's been going on up to 600,000 people have died. I don't know how many hundreds, uh, tens of thousands have been uh, raped and you only have to turn around the corner to Myanmar to look at the situation there. And now we have problems in Afghanistan, the genderized issue that is, that is going on there. So I think we are going to have these meetings on every single um, country you can uh, think of and have exactly the same uh, same issue. So I am currently working on a, a, a radical with Christopher on something completely different, and that is say, let us forget the humanitarian principles and let's go on to the new humanitarian age, where I think a much more pragmatic approach and an honest approach is, is, is required. There never was any neutrality in humanitarian action. And I say that as a government official and as a very senior uh, UN coordinator who headed at that time the world's largest operation, humanitarian operation in Sudan, when it was united. Now, so uh, I, I think this is a problem. The second problem is that uh, that we have become very risk averse nowadays. So, you know, uh, so uh, where are those days of Cambodia and so on and the earliest days of Afghanistan where you could, uh, where you cross borders uh, happily without actually ever anyone ever asking any questions about whether you needed resolutions or anything. So the courage has gone out of humanitarian action, except for a few small organizations here and there. And uh, uh, and I think it's very, very important to let humanitarianism be free and not be encumbered by these particular matters. If you And if as a donor you want to fund it or no, don't fund it, it's up to you entirely. But I know what public opinion wants and public opinion wants more honest humanitarianism taking place, not the bureaucratized version that is in the control of the humanitarian mafias, which are now running so many of our international organizations. Final comment on the Red Cross, and I'm a former Under Secretary General of uh, the uh, IFRC, and I know uh, I'm extremely familiar with the Red Cross movement. I think you haven't mentioned, none of you mentioned the Syrian Red Crescent, which is the most crucial gatekeeper in this. Even the UN agencies cannot operate without their beneficiary list and their uh, area of operation being endorsed by the Syrian Red Crescent, which is basically a department of the Syrian, uh, uh, Syrian government. And the reason ICRC operates is uh, uh, was able to operate uh, within these limitations is because it it does it in the name of the Syrian Red uh, Red Crescent, even though it has its own international persona as an international international organization. We know that, but I speak from inside the Red Cross movement. 
to know that the, that uh, the cooperation with the Syrian Red Crescent is extremely vital for uh, the operations of the of the of the ICRC. Now, having said that, it's not to say that they're not very principled. They are extremely principled and they have their own rules and their own independence, uh, visiting prisoners and a war and all those all those sorts of things, you see. But I am not in favor of uh, any more. I used to be when uh, in a different time and age, uh, but I really think our problem is that we are wedded to neutrality and impartiality in the provision of humanitarian aid when actually we might maximize humanitarian assistance to more people if it was if it went to the real politic and uh, we um, were able to do it in a way that allowed anybody who could work on any side to do it at the best way we can. Finally, I agree with, uh, I think, uh, was it Carsten who said, uh, I think the definition of humanitarian relief has gone too, uh, too, too, uh, too broad. If you look at the humanitarian principles, they all talk about relief with dignity. Nobody talks about transition and peace building and all the stuff that got uh, loaded onto this. Uh, initially, starting from UNHCR, which was talking about the triple nexus and the relief and rehabilitation and development and all those kinds of things. And I think we return. We need to return to a minimalist view of humanitarian relief, not a op, not a maximized view. But uh, I, I dare say either we kind of. Uh, return to basics, if I can put it that way, or I think lots of people will move out of the consensus and will kind of do their own uh, thing. And personally, I would welcome that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I will now uh, give uh, Manu the word, Kilar, please, and then uh, Anna. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I um, I wanted first to, to reply to, to Lars and Anna, obviously, um, this is my view from, from the outside. Lars, I am replying because I was the person who mentioned both MSF and ICRC, and I flagged them because I was um, saying, I, I mentioned them as two actors who were not stuck with um, the decision by OLA that consent of Damascus is required. They're not stuck with it because they're not UN implementing partners. Um, but it's very interesting to see that they've taken very different approaches to whether or not they are going to operate with, um, from, um, from neighboring states without the consent. MSF from the outset said, we do not think that as a matter of law, the consent of Damascus is required and we are going to operate. Um, and I think some of their national staff have paid the consequences of this. The ICRC, on the other hand, took the opposite decision and said, um, we're not specifically mentioned in 2165, and um, we are not going to operate without consent. And the ICRC was involved in the cross-line convoys. So I, I think in itself, it is very interesting to see the very different approach that these two organizations that are, if you want, the traditional Dunantist ones took to this um, particular question. So that's um, that's my answer to that. I actually also wanted to pick up on a point that Carsten had made at the end about is the law changing? Are we seeing an evolution? And I'm, I'm sorry to be a bit the, um, take, taking a very conservative approach here, but it's states that make international law. It's not, you know, the, the conservative, the, the wishful thinking of, of academics. 
in this. We can nudge things along. And I think as um, as Christopher was pointing out, if in 2011, 12, there was a bit of confusion at whether or not consent was or was not required, the shining of the light on this particular issue and the inclusion uh, and, and the effect of the resolution saying consent is not required has really focalized attention on this particular issue. So, as you know, there's General Assembly Resolution 46182 that sets out the, the framework for UN humanitarian response and that already flagged the need for consent. And while in the past the Security Council never mentioned it, it's a General Assembly Resolution part, we don't mention it, since Syria and since the fact that 2165 removed the need for consent in this particular instance, what you see is that states are states, Russia, China, the suspects, the states that want to preserve their separate sovereignty are invoking this General Assembly resolution and the need for consent systematically, including in areas where it's not relevant. So I would say that as a matter of state practice, what we are seeing is an entrenchment on the need for consent. And I think, again, it's regrettable. I think um, it's unfortunate. Perhaps we could have got to a stage where the law could have been more interpreted more progressively. But I would say that Syria has had the opposite effect. And then I would move away from the letter of the law to operational practice, which is, again, staff security. I mean, it's it's not just a matter of what the law says. It's also a reality that if you don't have the acceptance of all the parties that play a role in the areas where you operate, your staff is going to be at risk and the very people you're trying to assist are also at risk. So it's it's far more complex than just the law. And I don't actually think that um, and I think that Syria and the Security Council's response has actually entrenched the more conservative interpretations by states. Excellent, thanks. Uh, Anna, please. And then I'll go back to you, Kashin, for an, a final comment. Thank you so much. I have uh, a few comments, uh, but I'll try to, to answer uh, quite uh, straight, in a straightforward way to them. I just would like to go back to the beginning of our conversation and to mention that if we take, for example, the issue of contracting that uh, Karsten uh, raised at the beginning in the introduction. I'd like just to say that while um, the, uh, the sanction-related concerns are extremely uh, exposed and, and relevant when it comes to the UN response, um, NGOs do have to comply with what sanctions regulations uh, um, say um, in the EU, US and other legislation. So my question oftentimes when I was in, in Damascus, question to myself more than others was if, he, if there are so big concerns about um, the fact that uh, sanctions are not uh, adhered to by the UN for a number of different reasons, uh, why not give it more money directly to NGOs that in, instead will guarantee uh, that um, you are not going to work with sanctioned entities? And just for the sake of numbers, um, I'd like also to say that the NGOs, when I arrived in Damascus, international ones, had a budget of 60 million uh, USD per year altogether. And when I left, um, the budget was decreasing. It increased, uh, but uh, it was going down again. And it was around 130, 140 uh, million uh, USD a year. Uh, we all know the numbers around the response, but that's just to give you a dimension of, of uh, what the response out of Damascus of international NGOs was. Uh, 
Um, a point on uh, pragmatism versus principled response. Uh, I do agree that uh, we need to understand a little bit better what we say, what we mean when we say pragmatism, because I think the points I, I raised at the beginning talk very much to, uh, as Manuela was saying, humanitarian negotiations. And that is, yes, being pragmatic and facing the real reality, what you have in front of you if you want to actually support people in need. Uh, but is it bad <laughs> or is it good? Uh, is the qualification of pragmatism that really is challenging us all? And it normally goes with the qualification that tends to say unprincipled or bad. Um, and here I say, Mukesh, I think you are saying something important, which is are, and many are, are asking this, are principles still valid, humanitarian principles, or are we just being all hypocrites in actually pretending <laughs> that they are still valid? Um, I speak for perhaps a not a senior decision maker in the humanitarian uh, business, but those very principles have actually protected me and, and my staff uh, in many different instances on the ground and with very assertive different types of, of actors, right? So I do think um, they need to be perhaps discussed more openly and transparently. I think that we need to be more honest about uh, us being able to adhere to them or not uh, in full. Uh, yes, uh, we need to create spaces for that, but I don't think we can afford to drop them. Uh, but perhaps, yes, we need to combine them with the pragmatism of the different realities we face. Wonderful, and it's exactly by questioning them that we also get the, uh, find the need to also formulate and reformulate their potential justification and their various roles. And as you as you show also uh, in in your discussion today these questions of neutrality independence impartiality are often discussed in stereotyped versions where you don't see the uh, nuances and the complexities and how different types of concerns uh, strategic legal ethical uh, interact in this uh, in these discussions and um I'd like to, to give uh, Karsten the, the chance to just um, share some final thoughts on this. But what I uh, think that this discussion has also uh, contributed uh, to is the thinking or the discussion on the alternatives, because we can really see the problems of how humanitarian aid was manipulated in the Syrian context. And we see this again now in Afghanistan. We have Myanmar, Yemen, Ethiopia was mentioned uh, as, as settings where it's, it's really extremely hard task to work in accordance and to justify the applicability of the principles in those settings. But the question of the alternative really is an important uh, part of that discussion. We're really kind of hands on realistic discussion on what are the alternatives to this. And in, in the final part of your book, uh, Kashin, you do mention, for instance, this Rosenthal report on Myanmar and how it, it, it formulates two types of, uh, two types of uh, diplomacy as ways of, you know, quiet and more vocal uh, diplomacy as ways of kind of 
counterbalancing the power of a regime in a setting like this. And there have been a lot of uh, discussion on how different agencies can collaborate better in having shared red lines. There are all these, and then we see how difficult it is actually to make it happen in practice. I'm really happy that we got to see some of the nuance uh, here and not just the kind of uh, generalized standard positions of for or against neutrality, you see. So uh, back to you, Kashin, for some final words. Well, thanks a lot. <clears throat> I I see um, a very interesting debate here. I think and I've come to a slightly different conclusion, in, at least in my exposure of talks and discussions I've had about, um, you know, this firewall, uh, that it has been so helpful in many ways, as also Anna said, um, dividing humanitarian decision-making or principles and, and then the political departments. Um, but I also think that you have to take down this wall and look and, and peep across um, into the other side because we don't have a politically, um, uh, um, you know, empty space in which humanitarians operate. And of course, new humanitarianism, I found it very refreshing also um, to be perhaps more honest to each other. Um, I see within the UN, for example, that often has a very flat learning curve because of many political reasons, also because we have all members, all states members of the UN also on this, on, on that side of the aisle, but also because you have a lot of rotations where, where knowledge gets lost or also people are just rotated away without accountability. So as we saw in 2017, when the UN tried um, to, uh, you know, they had this internal paper, the parameters and principles on Syria, a paper that was actually absolutely unnecessary because it reiterated simply the humanitarian principles for uh, humanitarian aid in Syria. But it was necessary to remind its own people uh, about, uh, you know, these principles and neutrality and impartiality. But there was no follow up inside the UN on this. But what did happen, and this is where I'm getting to, so we are back into the political, you know, whether there's no firewall anymore. It is what what did matter was um, donors reactions. So it was the financial pressure in the end. And I have talked to donors and they say they have, and there were UN people who told me, please scrutinize us more properly, read between the lines, ask us whom did you contract and why, and, and ask more questions, which is more work, of course, but um, it, there is um, a, a movement not only into diversification towards NGOs, but then who need to be protected if they work against this um, established rules. And I would say even up to a no-fly zone. I mean, if you do cross border without consent, then the political and military logical consequence would be to protect them in some way. Um, that's why I said uh, also Anna pointed to it uh, at the end of the book that humanitarians have been left alone in a conflict that politicians, uh, that the political ones couldn't solve. Um, so, but what you need, in fact, is um, a, a certain honesty um, where you where you say, okay, now we 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 can't operate in a in a in a neutral room. And I do see, uh, on the one hand, absolutely what Emanuela says, the conservative view has prevailed in these years. And I even argue in the book that uh, responsibility to protect, which is at the far end of this very other side, which says, you know, you have permeable sovereignty. Uh, governments can't do with its people what they want. There will be international repercussions. This has been buried under the rubbles of the Syrian war. 
But on the other hand, what I do perceive is uh, not only on NGOs um, levels and wishful thinking level, I do see more thinking on possible alternatives also in international practice that then turns into international law. I think maybe we will see, I think in a few years only, what impact the Syrian uh, war and atrocities did have actually uh, on international law. But I see both dynamics here struggling with each other. And I think the Ukrainian war has, has increased that struggle where you have a um, entrenching of both sides. Uh, on the one hand, those who, who, who say universal principles of international law and the other sovereignty according to the conservative reading and Westphalian uh, reading. And I think this is playing out on a much larger scale than Syria only, but perhaps it makes a lot of people understand what was really at stake in Syria because uh, the Ukraine is in uh, is much more present to many people. What I also would like to underline is, um, yeah, a minimalist view of humanitarian aid. Um, while on the one hand, we have a, a, a hardened um, approach on sovereignty by the side of Russia and Syria, North Korea, usual suspects. We also have then the same attempt of those of the side to, to blur the lines between humanitarian aid and humanitarian plus, or however you want to call it. And that's why I mentioned it, uh, you know, this uh, UN Security Council resolution where you have early recovery, in the end you have reconstruction, etc. And when, we, when the Red Cross and the ICRC, in fact, are um, touring capitals and asking for electricity uh, reconstruction as a humanitarian pledge, uh, we are quite far uh, from delivering food. On the other hand, of course, you want to alleviate the suffering. So this is a real dilemma that will persist. What I would like to conclude with is um, the problem. There are many reasons I point out as well why I think the practice in Syria has also done some damage. Uh, in fact, has damage to the credibility of the UN, damage to international law, damage to the needy, um, uh, but also damage to a certain attempt of mediation and to end a conflict, which is a humanitarian thing by itself. If you end a conflict, you can start really um, uh, get this country back into the economic circle, uh, alleviate suffering. So if you if you have a, a, a lopsided way of, of humanitarian aid doesn't reach the needy uh, under the cir circumstances that are applied currently, then you prolong a conflict. And that also har does more harm and, and makes it more difficult in an asymmetric war to really convince this stronger party to the table that needs to be um, engaging in a serious negotiation to change the realities on the ground. And as we have heard today as well, I think, yes, you cannot change the reality with international theoretical law discussions. You can't change reality with a new constitution that is being discussed in Geneva about Syria. You can only change realities uh, with change of governance and adherence to humanitarian and human rights law. And that's actually what is missing. And that's but that's on the political scale, of course. So that that interface between politics and law, I think, is that crucial um, issue that we have been discussing. And I'm very happy about these different perspectives that we have heard today. Thank you. Thank you. And then I also think it's it's uh, important to, to uh, also in the spirit of the presence here of our Anna to, to recognize the immense uh, work and sacrifice that both international and local humanitarian workers have done over this uh, period. 
Uh, we could also have discussed more the uh, positions and roles of uh, donors. Uh, they're, they're part of this, this picture, how states uh, and the different UN agencies maneuver this. There's a lot more that we could have discussed. I didn't even mention Ukraine, you did now, Kashin, that's good, but that's another chapter to be uh, discussed also with these uh, questions in mind. So thanks so much for participating. Thanks to the three of you. Thanks to Mukesh and Lars for your comments. Uh, thanks to the other uh, roundtable participants that include, for instance, Dennis Dix-Kuhl, who's also involved in this webinar series as the representative of the Institute of International Law, Peace and Armed Conflict. And I'm actually uh, leading this meeting from uh, Oxford, where I visit the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, which is another co-organizer of the series. So thanks so much and uh, looking forward to the continuation of these discussions. Thank you. <laughs>